Well, after a long hiatus, we are finally back in the book of Jonah on Sunday evenings. I had to look back on this, and the last time we were in this book, Thanksgiving was still on the horizon. The Huskers were five and three, and they lock for a bowl game. And Jonah had just been thrown into the sea. That was where we left off. He'd been swallowed by a great fish, as Jonah 1.17 tells us, and he was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Well, I'm excited to uh, finally turn our attention back to this powerful little book this evening to get back into it, to gain some momentum, and to eventually complete our study of this book. Now, because we've been out of the book for so long, it has actually been multiple months now, I do think it'd be wise to do a quick review of some of the territory we've covered so far. Um, So far, what we've seen is that, and you you can track along with me here in Jonah chapter 1, that Jonah was this prophet of Yahweh and specifically was a prophet to the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And he was on the run. That's what I've laid out for you so far as we've worked through this text, hence the title of the series, Running Rebel. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, this major city, this powerful city in, in pagan Assyria. And God had given Jonah the task of going to that city and to Assyria to preach against the paganism in that part of the world. We see Yahweh's command to Jonah there in Jonah 1-2, where he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, we know, didn't go to Nineveh. Rather, he left his native town of Gath-Hefer and instead went down to Joppa, a port town, where he boarded a ship to Tarshish, which was about as far from Nineveh as one could get in this time and this age. Tarshish and Nineveh, to give you a point of reference, were about as far away from each other as Lincoln, Nebraska is from Venezuela. That's how far Jonah wanted to get from his original command and and from God, ultimately. So Jonah boards the the ship for Tarshish, and, and after the ship disembarks, the Lord threw, he tossed, we see the word hurled there in verse four, a great wind on the sea. And that wind, in turn, caused this great storm to fall upon the sea. And the ship on which Jonah was a passenger, it says, was about to break up. We know this was some sort of cargo ship. And Jonah wasn't the only person on the ship. Rather, the ship had at least a captain. And then we know that there were some pagan sailors on this ship that reported to that captain. And these mariners, who surely had seen their share of nasty storms in their years, were in this state of panic as this storm came upon the ship. They're pictured here in Jonah 1.5 as crying out to their gods, and then, then they're pictured as throwing their cargo overboard to basically save themselves and to save the ship. And in the case of the captain, he goes down into the hold of the ship, uh, verse 5 we see, and he finds Jonah there, sound asleep, in fact, in a, in a deep sleep. And then in verse 6, the, this pagan sea captain is described as, as urging Jonah to wake up. Look there at verse 6. He says, get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Meanwhile, above deck, the the, the sailors had cast lots to see who might among them be responsible for bringing this storm upon the ship. And as we saw there at the end of verse 7, it says, the lot fell on Jonah. Well, naturally, in this day and age, or in this time, that, that would have piqued the sailors' curiosity. Because this violent storm had suddenly come upon them. They had had to resort to throwing their precious cargo overboard. The ship they were on was threatening to break apart, meaning their ship, which was their source of livelihood, was about to go out of commission, and their lives now are are in danger. So they asked this flurry of questions in verse 8, which can essentially be boiled down to, who are you, this is directed to Jonah, and where are you from? And in verse 9, the prophet answers. He says, I am a Hebrew, 
And then he, not only that, he says, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, to this point in the narrative, Jonah certainly wasn't acting like he feared the Lord God of heaven. Uh, but what the sailors heard was that this man's God was Yahweh, a God they surely had heard of by then. And they were surely to some degree acquainted with in light of all his victories on behalf of the people of Israel. And what they heard was that this man's God had, had made the sea, the very sea from which this violent storm had been birthed. And what they heard was that this man's God had made the dry land, the very land that they so desperately wanted to get back to. And so they asked Jonah this series of questions. First in, in verse 10, they asked, how could you do this? The sense here is, how could you bring this calamity upon us? Why would you do such a thing? Then in verse 11, they say, uh, what should we do so that the sea may become calm for us? They're asking, what can we do to calm these waves down? How do we still this storm? And then Jonah in verse 12 gives them a solution. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And as I attempted to explain to you the last couple of times we've been in this book, I do not believe this is the humble act of self-sacrifice that it might first appear to be. This, I don't believe, is Jonah falling on his sword or, or repenting or typifying the future atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Rather, this instead is an example of Jonah doing things he was customarily doing Jonah's way instead of doing things God's way. Rather than asking the captain of the ship, this is what repentance would have looked like in this scenario, to turn back to Joppa so that he could carry out the mission that God had given him to preach to the Assyrians, to preach to the Ninevites, Jonah instead asked to be thrown into the sea. In other words, Jonah was expressing here that he would rather die than act in accordance with God's will and to follow God's commands. He was expressing that he would rather drown in those waves than do the will of God. And I think you could even extend it to say he was communicating that he would rather see those Ninevites perish than preach to them. In verse 13, though, we see that the sailors did not heed uh, Jonah's requests. Instead, it says they rowed desperately to return to the land. They were furiously, frantically digging into those waves to get Jonah back to dry land. But despite their efforts, we see in verse 13, they could not. And it says, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And then here's the, the final development of the narrative in chapter 1, which is where we ended last time. And verse 17, of course, would be the one that we are almost familiar with coming into this series. Look at Jonah 1, 14 through 17. After being unable to get him back to dry land, it says, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. All right, well, that catches us up. That brings us to the front door of the text that will be in this evening, where we're going to encounter the next development in this narrative in Jonah chapter 2. And you heard it said earlier, we're going to try to attempt to cover the entirety of Jonah chapter two tonight. We're not doing that because I feel like there's a need to play catch up after these weeks off. I'm sure we could break down and dissect each and one of these words laboriously, but I, I'm doing this as one section because this is a single thought and development in the narrative. And I do think it's best to take it as one block in one fell swoop. So here's Jonah chapter two. I'll read it first and we'll go into it word by word, verse by verse. God's word reads, 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. What I've just read to you and what we'll be working through tonight is a real turning point in the book of Jonah. You know, everything we've seen in this book so far has portrayed this sad downward arc of Jonah and his life. Jonah has been portrayed so far as this privileged yet rebellious prophet of the Lord. And as we've just gone through, the entirety of the first chapter of the book that bears his name portrays this real downward plunge that Jonah was on. He was a disobedient prophet. He was a reckless handler of his many distinct spiritual privileges. He was an awful witness to the pagan sailors the Lord had placed around him. And now as he finds himself thrown into the sea... He's finding himself being swallowed up by this great fish. And as we turn to chapter 2 here, we see this second act of this divine drama start to unfold. And we start to see Jonah's eyes opened, at least in some ways, in of all places, the pit of a stomach of a fish. Like chapter 1, chapter 2 here is couched in narrative. We see that in verse 1 and verse 10. Those are clearly narrative statements. And then sandwiched between the narrative in verses 2 through 9 is a prayer. The title of this evening's message is The Recounting. And I've given the sermon that, that title because what I believe is happening here in this section is that Jonah, who is the human author of this book, and who is writing this after the fact biographically, is recounting what occurred in the events that led up to him ending up in the stomach of that fish for three days and for three nights. There's no indication that Jonah had, a, had parchment and a pen, or for that matter, light, when he was inside the stomach of, of this fish. So I don't believe he scrawled out what we see here while he was sloshing around in the fish's stomach. Rather, he would have written out what we have here once he was heaved out onto dry land. At that point, he would have recounted, remembered all that he had experienced from being tossed overboard to starting to sink into the ocean's deeps to being in the fish's stomach. And at that point, he would have written out the prayer he prayed and then the footnote here in verse 10 about eventually being vomited out by this great fish hence again the reason for the title this evening the recounting this is jonah on dry land recounting remembering recalling each of those significant events it's a very simple outline for this evening in verse one we have the request in verses two through nine that's the prayer we have the remembrance and then in verse 10, we have the result. I couldn't think of an R word that goes with vomit. So it's just the result. Let's get into it. Starting with verse 1 and the first few words of verse 2. This is the request. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. 
and he said, and I'll stop right there. See, when when Jonah hit the water back in verse 15 of chapter 1, he must have expected death. There was no Coast Guard in those days. There was no ships with sonar or airplanes with radar. There was no GPS scanning the ocean's deeps for people or men that had gone overboard. There was just Jonah. There was only Jonah, not another human soul around. And he's sinking further and further into the inky blackness of the sea. And surely at this moment, he must have been thinking something like, that's it. I'm done. I have mere moments left to live. But then this great fish swoops in and swallows him whole. What that looked like, we don't know. Whether Jonah went into the fish head first or rump first, we don't know. Whether he was right side up or upside down when he went into the fish's mouth, we don't know. What the force of the current was that he was riding as he went into the fish's stomach, we don't know. All we know is that he was swallowed whole and alive by a great fish. All we know from this text is that somehow Jonah went all the way from that fish's mouth all the way down to its stomach. Jonah 1.17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. All we know from Jonah 2.1 right here is that somewhere during Jonah's stay in the stomach of this fish, he not only became aware that he was not dead, but that he was in fact very much alive. And all that we know, what we do know from his reaction after coming to this awareness, is that he prayed. After coming to realize that I'm not dead, I'm alive, I'm somewhere dark, his reaction was to pray. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Now by all appearances, Jonah was in this utterly hopeless situation. Fish are are cold-blooded creatures, and the ocean water inside that fish would have been cold, and Jonah's surroundings would have been dark. Not only that, it's not like Being in the stomach of the fish was going to be some sort of long-lasting situation for Jonah. If he had any understanding of how digestive processes work in any of God's creatures, he would have been able to put two and two together and realize this wasn't going to end well for him. It was only going to be a matter of time before he became a victim of that fish's digestive process. In hours, days, he didn't know. He was alive. He was aware that he was alive. But surely he must have known and gathered that he was somehow in the jaws of death. And that that being swallowed up by what we now know was this fish was only a stay of execution. This was a dangerous situation. This was a perilous situation, which makes Jonah's reaction here, which was to pray, all the more significant. Now remember, this is the same Jonah who mere moments before, verses before, was sleeping in the hold of the ship during an earlier rough encounter with the sea. This is the same Jonah who was put to shame by those pagan sailors on that same ship who first prayed to their God and then prayed to Jonah's God before Jonah did any praying at all. This is the same Jonah who up to this point was openly rebellious and open about his rebellion against God and on the run from God. And finally, we see Jonah here in the stomach of this fish doing what he should have been doing all along, which is somehow some way turning to God rather than turning his back on God and continuing to run away from God. With that, we'll get to the content of his prayer, which brings us to our second heading for tonight, which again is the remembrance. The remembrance. As we get into this, again, I'll mention that I believe this prayer was, was actually prayed while Jonah was in the fish's stomach, 
and that Jonah actually wrote out the content of this prayer after he was expelled, vomited onto dry land. I also want us to note as we work our way through this prayer that what you see here is not Jonah pleading with God for deliverance. There is not one petition or request in this this statement here, in this prayer. Rather, this is a prayer of remembrance as Jonah reflects and recounts on what the Lord did for him by rescuing him as he was sinking to the bottom of the ocean floor. All right, his prayer begins with the first few words of of verse 2. And as we see here, his prayer reads somewhat like a psalm. He recalls what he's just been through and what the Lord did for him. He begins by recalling, you can see it there. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. What this is referring to is those moments. How many seconds or minutes? We don't know. We just know it couldn't have been very long because he he had a human limitation on how long he could breathe and stay alive. This is recounting that moment when Jonah was barreling to the bottom of the sea after having been thrown overboard by the sailors in Jonah 1.15. It was during this time as he's sinking to the depths of the Mediterranean in this clear moment of distress with his mouth closed and bubbles coming out of his nose and his body tensing up in its natural protective state of panic that he called out to the Lord. I called out of my distress to the Lord. Now the call Jonah mentions here is not necessarily a reference to a shout of a, of a drowning man. His drowning shout wouldn't be heard. Instead, this is most likely describing what he was thinking within himself and expressing to the Lord as he was sinking. And then look what comes next here in verse 2. It says, and he answered me. How did Yahweh answer Jonah? Did he do so audibly? Did he say audibly to Jonah, don't worry, Jonah, I've got this? Don't worry, Jonah, I'll deliver you. Just let go and let God, Jonah. Is that how God answered him? No. God answered Jonah's prayer of desperation and distress as Jonah was flailing around in the depths of the Mediterranean and sinking down further into the sea by sending the great fish to swallow him up. Recall the words of Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. In other words, that fish was not some stray sea creature that was just sort of aimlessly cutting its way through the currents in the sea. Rather, this fish was like a cruise missile sent by God to reach its intended target. It was sent by God to reach that specific point in the sea where Jonah was about to be thrown. Does that fact amaze you? Does that fact comfort you? That God is so meticulously and sovereignly in control of all things. To know that God appointed this fish at this time to be in this exact place at that specific moment to accomplish God's specific design in. That fact really should wow us. That fact really should amaze us. And that fact should actually comfort us. Because the God of Jonah's day is the God of our day. And just as he appointed that fish to swallow up this disobedient prophet so as to rescue him, he has appointed every incident occurrence, occasion, circumstance, situation, victory, trial that you and I ever will have. He has appointed the people that will come into your life. He has appointed the opportunities that will come before you. He is numbered, as Jesus would say later in Matthew 10, 30, every single hair on your head. He has appointed the date on which you were born. And he has just as surely appointed the other date that will be on your tombstone one day, the day that you will go into the ground. He is sovereign over it all. He has sovereignly appointed it all. 
And that truth should not be some source of exasperation or even debate. Rather, that truth should be a source of comfort and joy to know that every little intricate detail of our lives, details, if we're being honest, we would only mess up if we were in control of them, is under the protection and the care of an all-wise, all-good, all-sovereign, all-protective God. And here's another really amazing truth. For some reason, though he certainly doesn't need us to, God allows us to pray to him. And he uses our prayers to accomplish his already decreed and ordained sovereign ends. He doesn't need our prayers to accomplish his purposes in saving unregenerate souls. But he uses our prayers to accomplish his divine ends in saving those souls. And here in the case of Jonah... He didn't need Jonah's prayers to bring about the deliverance Jonah received through this great fish. But somehow he used Jonah's prayers to accomplish his own predetermined end to have that fish be in the right place at the right time to swallow up this prophet. All of what I've just mentioned is tied in with the first part of Jonah's prayer in verse 2 where he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. Now, before we get too much further into the prayer here, I want us also to note that Jonah was a man who apparently was steeped in the scriptures of his day. He wasn't only a Hebrew in name only. He was a Hebrew who apparently knew the Hebrew Bible of his time. Now, we can say that with confidence because of the ways Jonah's own prayers here in some ways mirror and in other cases echo previous biblical revelation. In fact, keep a finger in Jonah here and go back with me to Psalm 18, and I'll show you what I mean. Look at Psalm 18, and we'll start in verse 4. Psalm 18, 4 says, The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Does that sound familiar? And cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Another one would be Psalm 118 verse 5, which says, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. Or or Psalm 120 verse 1 says, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Those all sound a lot like Jonah's prayer here in Jonah 2, 2, where he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. Jonah, in other words, knew the scripture. And as he penned his own account of what happened to him in the stomach of this great fish, it was natural for him to borrow from scriptural language to describe his experience. If there's something positive that we can take away from Jonah's life and Jonah's example, it would be this right here that he prayed scripture back to God. That's a principle that we can grab onto and cling to and and, and apply to our lives today to make sure that as we pray back to God, as we petition God, that we pray the truths that he's already revealed about himself back to him. Now, as we move on into the prayer, still here in verse two, Jonah gets more specific about the content of his prayer. As he finds himself swirling and sinking down into the waves, he says, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Now, mini theology lesson here. Sheol, in the Hebrew conception, in the Hebrew mind, was the place of the departed, the place of the dead. 
It was thought of by the Israelites in Jonah's day as a literal place where the dead went. We see that, for example, in, in Genesis 44, 29, where Sheol is used in the literal sense by Jacob. The scene there, you'll recall, I'll just cut to the chase with it. That's that scene where Jacob learns that he's going to have to make some sort of swap. When he hears Benjamin is the trading piece that he's going to have to send down there, he says, if you take this one from me also and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Sheol there by Jacob was being used literally. He was saying, I've already lost Joseph. And if I lose Benjamin too, I'm going to die. My heart won't be able to take it anymore. And I'm going to go to the grave. I'm going to go to Sheol. So there's this literal sense of Sheol being the place where the dead go. A Sheol in that literal sense was spoken of in the Old Testament as being located under the earth. Amos 9.2 says, though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there will I bring them down. They dig into Sheol. It's underground. Those in Sheol were seen as somehow being separated from God. Isaiah 38.18 says, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down into the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. And yet Sheol was also still considered to be accessible by God. Here's a familiar passage for most of you. Psalm 139.8 says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Well, Sheol was not always used in a literal sense in the Old Testament. In fact, there are many times where we see the term used figuratively or poetically to speak of, of death. For instance, we see the term Sheol used that way, this poetic way, this figurative way in Psalm 30, verse 3, which says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Or Psalm 86, 13 says, For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Now, if you remember our last sermon in Jonah, where I took us from Jonah 1.17, about Jonah being in the stomach of the fish, those three days and three nights, and I leapt from there to Matthew chapter 12, that scene where Jesus speaks of the sign of Jonah. I will tell you that there, there are many Bible interpreters and scholars and theologians, as we saw in that last sermon, who want to find Jesus, or at least allusions to his death on the cross way back in the pages of Jonah. This camp would be quick to find types in the Old Testament. They'll read the Bible backwards and they'll assume wrongly, I would say, that the whole Bible is about the cross and the whole Bible is about our personal individual salvation through Christ. I won't rehash all those arguments. Now you can go find the arguments on sound words. But what I will say tonight is this. In their haste and their zeal to find Jesus on every page of the book of Jonah, those same authors and scholars will often conclude that Jonah must have died in the belly of that fish. That he was somehow brought to life, from death to life in the belly of that fish. That he went through what we Christians now know as resurrection, making him a, that perfect match, that perfect type of Jesus and his resurrection. A couple of responses to that line of thinking. First, to be a type of Christ, Jonah didn't have to die in the stomach of the great fish. To be the bearer of what Jesus would later call the sign of Jonah, Jonah didn't literally need to die. No, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12, in referring to the sign of Jonah, 
that it was him going into that belly of the fish for three days and for three nights that makes it the sign of Jonah, just as Jesus would go into the earth for three days and for three nights. The sign of Jonah is not that Jonah died. The sign of Jonah is that Jonah was in the, the, the fish for three days and three nights, typifying what Jesus would later do in the heart of the earth. Second, that use of Sheol, the use of Sheol in this passage, in no way compels the conclusion that Jonah actually died. Rather, as we're going to make our way through this prayer, what is being described here is the fear of death, the encounter with potential death, which had gripped Jonah in this encounter. In other words, Jonah was using this term Sheol to convey how he felt while he was struggling in the water in his state of deep distress and severe affliction. He's speaking metaphorically here of the dire prospect that's facing him of joining the dead and actually going to Sheol. This wasn't an actual death experience for Jonah. This was a close brush with death for him. He realized he's on the brink of death and he's crying for help. I cried for help, he says, verse two, from the depth of Sheol. And then we see here that God listened to his cry for help and went to his rescue. Look at the last few words of verse two. It says, you heard my voice. As we've already seen, God not only heard Jonah's cry of anguish, God responded to Jonah's cry by, respond, by providing for him in his need, by appointing this fish to swallow him up and save him from certain death. As we continue to work our way through Jonah's prayer here, specifically as we get to verses three through seven, we're given even more details about what took place in Jonah, Jonah's moments of despair and his struggling here in the sea. Look at verse three. It says, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Now, right away, we're struck again with this additional statement about God's sovereignty. As Jonah here, as a good Hebrew, is recognizing and affirming here that God is sovereign. God is in control. We saw back in Jonah 1.15 that it was the sailors who threw Jonah into the sea. There's no debating or getting around that fact. But here we see in Jonah 2.3 that it was actually God who hurled him into the deep, into the hopeless bowels of the ocean from which no one typically survives. Now that word deep there in verse 3 recalls Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, where the same term is used metaphorically by David when he says this. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. Jonah, though, was in no metaphorical deep. Rather, he was in the physical deep of the ocean. And he had no problem here putting his finger on the fact that it was God who had cast him into the sea, though it was the sailors who were instrumentally used to accomplish what God had designed. For you had cast me into the deep. Yahweh was behind the sailors' actions, just as he has always been behind all actions for all of mankind, the, the Canaanites of old and the Chinese government of today. There's nothing that is outside his sovereign control. Not only had God cast him into the deep, as it says, it says he had been cast into the heart of the seas, which, like the deep in that same verse, speaks to the depth of the trouble that Jonah was in. God was sovereign, not only in casting Jonah into the deep and casting him into the heart of the seas. Next, we're going to see that he was sovereign over each of these additional elements Jonah found himself surrounded by as he started tasting all the salt water all around him. Look at the 
The next part of verse three, he says, and the current engulfed me. The word for current there, nahar, is typically translated river or stream. Here it's being used to describe the ocean currents, the pull of the waves, the undertow. And then look at what comes next at the end of verse three. It says, all of these randomly moving breakers and billows and a total chance encounter passed over me. Is that what your Bible says? Mine either. No, it says, all your breakers and billows passed over me. Those words, again, highlight that that Jonah was highly biblically proficient and highly biblically literate with scripture coursing through his veins. These aren't randomly selected words. Rather, they, they echo similar sentiments from the Psalms, which Jonah apparently was familiar with. That includes Psalm 42, 7, which says, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Or Psalm 69, 1 and 2. We saw this one already, but it says, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. But the point is, They're God's waves and God's deeps. Now, while in these Psalms, the experience of of drowning was pictured more metaphorically or figuratively, figuratively, again, Jonah here is describing the physical experience of drowning that he was going through as he struggled for oxygen, as, as water started to fill his mouth and his nostrils. And again, note this, that even as the currents of the Mediterranean were swirling around Jonah, He never apparently lost recognition of the fact that it is God who controls the oceans and the seas. It is God who controls the wind and the waves and the breakers. That's why he calls them your breakers there in verse 3. The ocean here is not being described as some inanimate object, some ordinary force of nature. They're God's waves which were threatening to swallow the prophet. I just want to mention that's a biblically healthy in a biblically correct way for really anybody, any follower of God, to think about the world in which we live, to recognize that God is sovereign over it all and in control over it all. And the various elements of the world, whether it be the air that we breathe or the animals we depend upon for food or the crops that are grown or the water sources that we need, they're all subject to him. None of us lives in or is abandoned to a world of complete irrational chance. What a sad and a hopeless world that would be if that were in fact the case. To think that the situation in in Israel or the Middle East is not under God's control. To think that the 2024 elections are not under God's control. To think that the whole season of COVID was not under God's control. To think that our individual or collective futures is not under God's control. But they are. All of our lives, all of our experiences are under the divine superintendence of the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. Now, as we turn to verse four, Jonah's after the fact description of his prayer from the belly of the fish continues. He says, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Now, I don't want us to lose sight of how remarkable those very words are. As Jonah here is is flailing around in the ocean, aware that he's about to die, this is before the fish swallows him up, his thoughts internally expressed, that's what he means here when he says, so I said, he's talking to himself here, was the fact that I have been expelled from your sight. 
Those words are, tr- are truly stunning. Because when you think about it, at the beginning of this book, when you go to the very beginning, Jonah 1.3, isn't being out of God's sight exactly what Jonah wanted? Jonah 1.3, look over there. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get away from God. But now, as we get over to Jonah 2, from the deep, he's in the heart of the seas. He at least now has this wherewithal to admit the folly of how he'd been thinking all along as this running rebel and to admit where his sinful rebellion had gotten him as he realizes, I have now been expelled from your sight. He wanted to get away before. Now he's realizing the folly of his ways. But then look at these next words in the second half of verse four, because they're equally stunning. He says, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, later in this prayer, as we'll see in verse seven, Jonah is going to refer to his prayers coming to God in in his holy temple, which we're going to see, I think, is a a reference to God's heavenly throne room. But here in verse 4, I take these words, I will look again toward your holy temple, to be a reference to the physical temple in Jerusalem during Jonah's day. Cast into the sea because of his sins of disobedience and apparently still expecting death to come soon. Jonah here turns course and says, I will look again toward your holy temple. This is a a, a confidence that God's going to rescue him and deliver him. If Jonah were to actually die, of course, he would have no opportunity to look toward God's earthly temple in Jerusalem. But if he were to live and survive, he would have that opportunity to once again look in the temple's direction, to look again toward your holy temple. His words here in verse 4 are reminiscent of Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah, which says, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. That's what Jonah was describing here. His soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord there in Jerusalem. Here in verse 4, then, we see not only these expressions of Jonah's Deepest despair. I've been expelled from your sight. What a terrifying thought. But also the heights of hope. As he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. And then as we turn to verse 5 and into verse 6, Jonah seems to speak through prayer of this last judgment of God on his life as his final breaths leave him. He says, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. We won't spend too much time here, but what Jonah is describing in these verses is the fact that in his peril, as the waters were threatening to take his life, what we have in this verse and a half is this vivid description of Jonah's plunge into what appears to be this watery grave. And he starts by saying here in verse five, water encompassed me to the point of death. He's literally in over his head. There's no place for him to come up for air or to take a breath or to get a taste of any precious oxygen. As it says here in verse five, he was at the point of death, the point of being close to losing consciousness and passing out and eventually perishing. And he goes on to say, and the great deep engulfed me. Before he was later swallowed up by the fish, he was first swallowed up by the ocean. 
Anyone who's ever been knocked over by a wave or pulled aside or out to sea by a current or drifted by a a riptide knows what Jonah is describing here. He's describing that helpless feeling of being swallowed up and overpowered by the matchless might of the ocean. He was very much at this point feeling like he was a prisoner of the sea. Next, he says, weeds were wrapped around my head. As if it weren't difficult enough to be encompassed by the water to the point of death and be engulfed by the great deep, as Jonah's muscles grew more and more weary and his his breaths got shorter and shorter as his whole body became more panicked, at the same time, seaweed was entangling itself around him. Which, for any of you who have spent any time in the ocean, know that can actually be a pretty harrowing experience because seaweed is surprisingly thick, surprisingly durable, surprisingly annoying, as it can trip you up and tangle you up in the most inconvenient moments. And then as we get to verse 6, the portrayal shifts. As Jonah describes himself as descending to the roots of the mountains, where the earth with its bars were around me forever. This is a debated subject among commentators, but the references here to the mountains and the earth with its bars, and connection with where Jonah was located here in the sea, most likely is Jonah's way of expressing just how far he had sunk before this miraculous moment when the fish swallowed him whole. In other words, the fish didn't snatch him from the surface of the water. Rather, by the time he was swallowed up, Jonah had sunk perilously low to the point where he could describe these underwater mountains, meaning the the floor of the ocean, the floor of the sea, and the earth with its bars in the ocean's deeps. Now that phraseology there, the the bars of the ocean, of of the earth under the ocean, it's sort of an odd expression. Where does it come from? What's Jonah referring to? Well, it appears to be capturing the way that the Hebrews conceived of the concept of the boundaries of the ocean or the the boundaries of the, the basin floor under the ocean. In fact, we pick up on this way of thinking in Job 38, 8 through 10, where Yahweh says this to Job. He says, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. So there God to Job is describing how he put limitations on the ocean, its depths and its boundaries. And so when he, Jonah, here is speaking of descending to the roots of the mountains and saying the earth with its bars was around me forever, what I believe he's expressing is that feeling of being in the deepest parts of the ocean without any help or hope from any human support, any human beings. His long and harrowing journey down to the bottom of the ocean had gotten him to to this place where he really thought he was going to die. He really had this feeling of being entombed by the sea. And these verses here, verses five and six, what they do is express his great despair and hopelessness. As he says, water encompassed me to the point of death. Well, another way that we know how far Jonah had sunk in the ocean is what comes next at the end of verse six, where he says, but you have brought my life but brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Now that expression, you have brought up my life, indicates that by causing him to be swallowed by this great fish, the Lord actually had had snatched Jonah from the jaws of death. And for the reasons I've already mentioned, I don't believe this means that Jonah was dead and that God resurrected him. 
I don't believe that this is describing Jonah going to physical, literal Sheol, which is described as a pit in the Old Testament. Rather, I believe what this is describing is God physically rescuing Jonah from what otherwise would be his watery grave, a pit, and sparing his life physically. You have brought up my life. Even that word up is significant. You have brought it up from the depths of the ocean would be the context here. Well, now as we turn to verse 7, we see this next stage of development in Jonah's prayer. Seeing that he was about to die by drowning and that his life was ebbing away, he prayed to God for deliverance. You see the words recorded there, verse 7. He says, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Occasionally I'll be asked, not that often, but occasionally, why I preach from the Old Testament so often. And the answer I give is always the same, and it's twofold. Number one, the Old Testament is scripture. It's God's word. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's why I preach the Old Testament. Second, though, is that the Old Testament has so much application and so much truth and so much relevance to today. I mean, does it not? I wonder if there's anyone here this evening, for instance, as you're facing whatever valleys you're walking through or or trials that you're walking through, going through whatever depths you're going through, can relate to Jonah here. Now, surely there's a distinction here. We know he was physically sinking and physically declining and physically fainting away. But the principle here is true and applicable, that he remembered the Lord. And what a simple and a profound truth for all of us to grab onto tonight as we go on to this week and face whatever we're going to face this week. When you feel like things are slipping out of control, physically, spiritually, however they are, as they were with Jonah here, how important it is to remember the Lord, to remember who he is, to remember his attributes, to remember his character, to remember his promises. To remember his faithfulness. Getting back to the original context of Jonah here. He was getting closer and closer to physically expiring. To dying. That's what's meant by the words here in verse 7. While I was fainting away. But again he says I remembered the Lord. And not only that he says. And my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Back in verse 4. I mentioned that the, the reference to temple there appeared to be to the physical temple in Jerusalem of Jonah's time. He believed that he would one day see that temple again. Here in verse 7, though, what Jonah's referring to are prayers, his prayers coming to God in his holy temple. This is not a reference to the Jerusalem temple. This is a reference to God's heavenly throne room, as we see it in Psalm 11, verse 4, where the temple there is described as God's throne in heaven. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Jonah's prayers, in other words, as we see here in verse 7, were reaching God in heaven. And those prayers we've already seen were answered when God sovereignly appointed later in Jonah 1.17, the great fish to swallow Jonah, which was the means of rescue God provided to bring Jonah's life up from the pit to preserve his life and to grant him this stay of execution. Now, as we turn to verses 8 and 9, we come to a new section of Jonah's prayer and really the concluding words of his prayer in which he indicates that he had learned some important lessons from this experience. He says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will 
sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah caps off his prayer to Yahweh with these words, which really are words of thankfulness, as we'll see. He he starts with these words about the folly of of regarding, verse 8, clinging to. That would be another word for regard there. Trusting in vain idols, worthless idols. The word vain there is, is hevel, Solomon's favorite word in Ecclesiastes. Now, this thought is not a, a random toss-in by Jonah. Rather, having just interacted with these pagan sailors on this ship and, and surely being familiar with the idolatrous practices which were starting to take over Israelite worship practices at this time, this matter of idolatry would have been fresh in Jonah's mind. And his major point here is that no lifeless, worthless idol could ever bring about the deliverance that the God of heaven had just brought him. That's what he means when he's talking about those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But what does it mean when he says forsake their faithfulness? That sort of stands out there. Well, that word for faithfulness in the Hebrew text is is hesed, which can also be translated steadfast love, which can also be translated mercy. I believe what Jonah is saying here is that those who put their trust in, in helpless, hopeless, worthless idols in the place of trust in the living and true God, they have forsaken any hope of ever receiving mercy, or as in his case here, deliverance, in the way that he had just experienced mercy and deliverance. Figurines and trinkets made of wood and stone have no mercy, show no mercy, and certainly cannot rescue a man from the bottom of the sea. And then in verse 9, turning his attention from idolaters, Jonah rightfully turns his attention to where it ultimately should go, which is to Yahweh. He begins by saying, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Grateful for God's deliverance, Jonah here was pledging to make a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's the kind of sacrifice that we see mentioned um, in Leviticus chapter 7, a thanksgiving offering. Leviticus 7, 12 through 14 would be a reference. Not only that, Jonah declared, that which I have vowed I will pay. And that word pay can also be translated make good. I mean, Jonah here is saying, I will make good on all I've promised, of all I'm required as a prophet of Yahweh to do. From this point forward, God, I will be faithful in keeping my vows to you. I think that's what he's saying here, which also would include his vow as a prophet of God to carry out his commission to preach to the sin in Nineveh. More on that when we get to chapter 3 and 4. So here at the end of this prayer, we find Jonah in the same position. This can't be lost on us as the sailors back in Jonah 1.16. Look at Jonah 1.16 up the page. When they got to that place and it says, Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah's a little late to catch up. And he's the Hebrew. It shouldn't have taken him that long to get there, but it did, and and here he was. And then we see these words at the end of verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. Now again, there is a temptation, very prevalent, very real, to overread New Testament truths back into what Jonah is saying here, and to ascribe to Jonah something that he's actually not saying. 
Now, it is true, of course, and we can find this truth all over Scripture, that salvation in the, in the spiritual soul sense is of the Lord and comes only through the Lord. But in the immediate context of Jonah's experience and his prayer, what he is really saying here when he uses that word salvation, a synonym for this word as it's used here would be deliverance or rescue. What he's really doing is he's setting forth the contrast of the inability of the false gods, the gods of the idolaters to rescue anyone from their peril, whatever that peril looks like, physical peril, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, but through Yahweh, salvation, meaning deliverance here. In Jonah's case, being delivered from the deeps of a potential watery grave is possible. Does Jonah 2.9 stand for, as some have articulated, the gospel according to Jonah? I don't think so. Rather, this is declaring simply the delivering power of Yahweh. That's it. Let's not make it say more than what it's actually saying. Of course, there's one burning question. When people see Jonah 2, 9 especially, they see those words, salvation is from the Lord. He's like the apostle Paul in Romans chapter three, right? And they'll they'll wanna say, this is when Jonah got saved. This surely, when he says salvation is from the Lord, this surely is that moment that he became a child of God. Surely he experienced salvation. Surely this means he repented. Surely this means he's now this willing prophet. My answer would be to go back through the prayer that we've been working through this evening and to see if you can find anything that indicates that Jonah's heart was fully now in alignment with Yahweh's. I don't see anything in this prayer, ultimately, that indicates that Jonah had a David in Psalm 51 type of moment. I don't see anything in this prayer that indicates that Jonah is now anxious to pack his bags and head off to Nineveh. Rather, I tend to believe that what Jonah experienced here at most, and this is going to come into sharper focus when we get to Jonah chapter 4, he's expressing amazement that he was physically delivered. And this physical deliverance was naturally coupled with a prayer of thanks to the God who had physically rescued him, much like any unbeliever in our day might do as an act of religiosity, to offer up some sort of religious-sounding prayer to thank them for being spared when they were otherwise in dire straits. Well, in the moment, that apparently was good enough for Yahweh because after Jonah prayed this prayer, Yahweh responded. After bringing about the violent storm in Jonah 1.4 and causing the lot to fall on Jonah in Jonah 1.7 and calming the sea when Jonah was thrown overboard in Jonah 1.15 and commanding the fish to swallow Jonah in Jonah 1.17 and causing the fish to transport Jonah safely for those three days and three nights, uh, Yahweh next, in this next uh, exercise of his sovereignty, causes the fish to spew, literally to vomit, Jonah on a dry land, verse 10, says, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. If you're a note taker, our third point for this evening is the result. The result. After all of this, the pouting prophet, the the running rebel, was back where he began, on dry land. Uh, Whether he was covered in goop and scales, uh, we don't know. Uh, Whether he was bleached white from the fish's insides, we don't know. Is it all that important that we know that information? I don't think it is. 
Uh, We know what we know. We know what the text tells us. And what the text tells us is that Jonah was in the fish praying to God. And on account of his prayers, God caused him to be spit out onto dry land. The text does not tell us that God saved Jonah's soul on that occasion. The text does not say that Jonah believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. No, just as Jonah's demise was physical, as he was thrown into the sea, his rescue, as far as we can tell from the text, was also physical as he was rescued from the sea and expelled from the fish and spit out onto dry land. As one commentator notes, God concluded his assignment for this fish by commanding it to relieve itself of its cumbersome cargo. Was Jonah at this point repentant? Again, I really don't think we can reach that conclusion based on what we see in this text. But as we're going to see next time when we get to Jonah chapter 3, Jonah was about to be used of God to bring an entire people, the Ninevites, to a place of repentance. We'll cover that next time when we open the book of Jonah. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for just a rich day of study of your word and a time of fellowship with your people. Uh, Thank you for the many things uh, that you have continued to to bless us with individually and as a church. Uh, Thank you for the many gifts and the many graces you show us day over day and week over week and year over year. I pray that tomorrow, uh, as we have been told, there will be ice and snow and potentially dangerous travel that you would keep everybody here safe. I pray that we would all remember until that snow comes and that ice comes that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you protect your people, you love your people, and you will control all events according to your perfect plan and will. So God, I do pray that today's time of diving into your word has been edifying, has been convicting at times, and ultimately brings us to a greater confidence and understanding and renewal and our understanding of who you are, what your purposes are, and what you have done for us in Christ, and now how we are to live. Thank you for this day with these dear individual saints. Pray that you would go before us and help us to honor you all week long. In Jesus' name, amen.